Mark, starting in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to, Beth, to Bethage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, oh, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a dinner robber's. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came up again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and he said to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You can have a seat. Thank you. 
in the Old Testament, there were, there were three roles or three offices who had authority in different ways. And their authority, it was derived from God's authority. They were anointed to their positions. And in different ways, they mediated between God and the common man. They were the go-between, if you will, between a heavenly, all-powerful, transcendent God and little man, right? There were the prophets, representatives of God to man, mouthpieces of God, telling the people what God had to say to them and watching out for lies. There were priests, representatives of the people to God, offering sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people, coming into God's presence and caring for his sanctuary. And then there were kings, representatives of God over the people, exercising God's rule and dominion, ensuring justice and righteousness, caring for all of God's creation that was under them. So representatives of God to man, man to God, and God over man. These were the offices that existed. And when the prophets and the priests and the kings were true to God and they were true to his word, things tended to go well, for the most part, for the people. Moses led the people out of captivity. David ushered in a golden age, etc., etc., etc. However, when these authorities were corrupt, when they were idolatrous, when they were evil, when they disobeyed, it's a different story. And too often there were false prophets deceiving and leading the people away. There were bad priests like the sons of Eli who used their position as priests to take the sacrifices for their own bellies and women for their own beds. There were bad kings whose rule was tyranny, who warped justice into injustice and refused to remove the idols from the people. Bad authorities, they tend to leave a bad taste in your mouth towards, or they, leave, they tend to leave a bad taste in the mouths of those whom they are to lead, or they tend to lead them astray. It seems as soon as someone is in a position of authority, we tend to automatically have a level of distrust for them, right? Someone that we may trust generally or typically, and then they are placed in a position of authority and all, all of a sudden our trust for them begins to wane. The more authority, the more skeptical we tend to become. And, and it's not without reason because we still have bad authorities Today, right? Every day we find out about a politician or a CEO who used their power and their influence for sex or for money. Even the church world is rife with pastors or priests who are themselves so corrupted that they've corrupted their role for selfish impulses. Even parents and fathers who've disappeared or else 
We may think they had been, would have been better if they had disappeared, right? We're constantly wondering why, why are they in authority? Why is he in authority? Why is, are those people in authority and how can we be rid of them? We're quick to doubt their integrity. And no doubt, this is how the people of Israel felt that day when Jesus walked into Jerusalem. They looked back on their history of bad leaders. Even their good authorities had significant flaws, right? And their current authorities oppressed them. They were at least looking for a better king, if not for a better prophet and better priests as well. Well, if you've been around here at Proclaim for very long, this next point is not going to surprise you very much. All of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, they were all intended to point to one person. Can you guess who? Jesus, the Messiah, right? The Christ. Yes, it turns out, it turns out everything in the Bible is either flowing into or flowing out of Jesus and the gospel. I know it seems like I maybe say that every week. If I don't say that every week, I'm sorry. I'll try to do better and say it every week. The good authorities foreshadowed Jesus positively, and the bad authorities foreshadowed him by contrast. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's declaring himself to be the Messiah, to be the anointed one, to be the the one chosen by God, the true authority, not just the rightful king, but the rightful priest, the rightful prophet as well. Yet even while his authority is called into question, he reveals, he reveals the failures, not just of the current authorities, but of the entire structure. And here's the main point. Here's the bottom line I want to get uh, through to you or I want you to understand this morning. Jesus succeeds where everyone else has failed. Jesus succeeds where everyone else has failed. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the perfect priest. And Jesus is the perfect prophet. Let me pray and we will quickly go over this long passage. God, we are very aware of our failings. We're very aware of the failings of our uh, brothers and sisters, of our fellow humans who, who you've put in authority over us in different places, in different ways. We understand that we are all flawed in, in any number of ways as well. And, and uh, Lord, we repent. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your Holy Spirit to lead us and to change us, to sanctify us, to transform us into your image, the image of the better king, the better prophet, the better priest. Lord, we pray that we'd ultimately look to you. And God, I pray, I pray for, uh, especially for the family who's staying here in in, uh, the house here, who's daughter is sick with cancer and who's receiving treatment at Children's Mercy, God, would you, uh, would you 
do a special work in them, would you, uh, you have authority over everything. You have authority over the world. You have authority over us. You have authority over cancer. And so God, we pray for healing for Sarah. We pray that you would, uh, uh, the, the reality of your authority, the reality of your sovereign control over every single thing would uh, comfort the hearts of her parents and her siblings. They would lean into you, that they would know that even in the midst of uh, bad circumstances, um, God, you are still in control and you are still good and you still do good. We thank you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king would with shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. But, but do these people understand the kingdom Jesus is bringing in or that he will bring, the way he'll bring it? Verse 11, Jesus immediately, as he gets into the city, into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he looks around, even though it's late at night. Now, this is an odd thing for Jesus to do. It seems odd, and it's odd for Mark to note that, except for what is about to happen. You see, the book of Mark is filled with what you could call narrative sandwiches, okay? I know now you're, you're hungry, now that I said sandwiches, I'm sure. Narrative sandwiches, if I haven't mentioned this before, uh, it, it, as I share what it is, you'll probably think back to other stories in Mark that we've covered and go, oh, that's happened, that's happened in there, and that's happened in there. So basically what he does is he opens up a story about one thing, and then partway through that story, he inserts another story, right? And then after that story's done, he comes back to the first story and finishes it. And so you've got, that's where the sandwich part comes in, because you got like two pieces of bread, and then in the middle, you got the meat. And the meat, the meat is what matters the most. The meat is what helps you to understand uh, everything that's going on. And so right here in chapter 11, we have one of these narrative sandwiches. It, it, it opens up with this scene of a fruitless fig tree, right? And you're kind of like, why does Jesus do that? Why does Mark even talk about that? And then Jesus uh, goes into the temple and he begins to cleanse the temple. And then it ends, or, or after that, we see another story where they come across the same fig tree again, and it's withered. And so the next morning, Jesus gets up, and he heads to the temple, and he's on this mission, right? He knows what he's going to do, because the night before, he went and looked at it. And the very first thing the next morning, he's going to the temple. So he knows exactly what he's doing. It's not like he's like, oh, we'll just go to the temple. I'll just kind of see what happens today. No, he's on a mission. And on the way, he says he's hungry, and so he goes over to this fig tree that's leafing, right? So it, it, a tree would leaf. I, I'm not like an expert on trees or fig trees for that matter, but it would leaf, and then later the fruit would come. And so it's leafing, and he goes, and there's no fruit on it. And so he curses it. Except, Mark notes, that it's not the season for fruit anyways, like the leaves are there, so the fruit's coming, but it's not quite time for the fruit. But Jesus curses it. I always thought it was just because he was super hungry, kind of frustrated, but I don't think that's the case. That's why, why I would probably do it, but Jesus is better, right? So 
Um, Jesus gets to the temple and he begins driving people out. He begins to overturn the tables. He, he takes the chairs away from the people that are selling pigeons, not allowing people to pass through the temple. He's gone crazy, right? This is like crazy Jesus. Everyone gets a crazy day. No, no, he's, he's on a mission, remember? Like he planned it the night before. He knows what he's doing. This isn't like a whim. You got to understand the situation. So there's an area in the temple that is designated for Gentiles. It's the one place in the temple where Gentiles could go. Okay. And in that area, a few things were happening. This is supposed to be a place where Gentiles can come and, and can worship and can learn about the one true God. But a few things, there wasn't space for that for a few reasons. First, it was filled with money changers and animals. Now, pilgrims uh, that were coming from other countries, right? Because we're talking about Gentiles. So most of they're coming in from other places. Particularly this week, there would be a lot of them. And they're coming in and they can't carry sacrifices with them. It'd be too long of a journey for them to like, you know, carry their sheep on their back or whatever. And so they'd come in with some money and they'd, they'd buy their lamb to sacrifice. Now I read somewhere that this uh, particular week, Passover week, that they would sell a, a quarter million lambs. A quarter million. I had to read it twice. I'm, that's what it said. I'm not an expert, but that's what the experts say. That's a lot of sheep, okay? And the pilgrims couldn't carry their sacrifices and, 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 and they, couldn't ex they couldn't use money that had the image of Caesar on it. It wasn't allowed because it was deemed idolatry, right? Like we're not gonna accept something that has Caesar's face on it. And so they would have to exchange their money for a different kind of currency or they'd have to pay for whatever sacrifice that they wanted to have for Passover, I mean, this was a huge business for the city. This is an enormous moneymaker. You think that Christmas is a big moneymaker in our culture? This is like Black Friday on, you know, steroids. Even as they wouldn't accept money that idolized Caesar, the people were idolizing money in their hearts. They were charging exorbitant prices. They weren't exchanging the money at the rate that it actually was, but they were exchanging at a rate that was more beneficial for them. They were cheating the Gentiles for their own benefit. Second, people were using this outer court of the temple as a sort of shortcut into the city. You see, if they were carrying things from outside of the city into the city, you could either go around the entire temple complex, which is massive, I mean, acres, right? Or you could just cut right through the court of the Gentiles. They're just Gentiles anyways. Just carry your, carry your wares right through there. It's a way shorter trip. And so Jesus goes into the temple. He's like, no, he doesn't allow anyone to carry anything through that courtyard. 
What does this have to do with Jesus being the perfect king? Fun story, but what, how does this all come together? One of the primary jobs of the kings of Israel was to immediately upon their kingship read God's law and eradicate any idol worship from the people. That was one of the primary jobs for a king of Israel. When David came, became king, he would read God's law. If you go through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you'll find mentioned at every single king, you will find mentioned whether or not that king allowed idol worship or cleaned house. The reason you find that is because that was their primary job. Jesus is the true king and he's coming into his temple and he's not allowing injustice. He's not allowing unrighteousness. He's not allowing unholiness. It will be as it ought to be with his people, period. He will do it by any means necessary. One time I was in Sunday school class and this is a free story. This wasn't in my notes. So in Sunday school class, seventh grade, and there was a kid in the back and he was leaning back in his chair against the wall and he was talking the entire time my Sunday school teacher was trying to teach us about Jesus. And, you know, I'd kind of go through these phases where I was kind of like, I, I, was, I was conflicted as a seventh grader, as most seventh graders are. And I loved, I, on the one hand, I loved Jesus. On the other hand, I wasn't very well behaved. And, but I really loved this Sunday school teacher because he was just a really nice guy. And he was talking and the, this guy's talking, talk, 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 talk. And I can't hear him and he's just disrespectful. And so I get up and I reach and I pull his chair out from under him, right? And he's boom, falls. The, immediate, the, the Sunday school teacher goes, Cody, go find your parents. That's all he said. And I just walked out like, Ooh. but here's the deal. Jesus pulled the seats out from underneath the pigeon sellers, right? I feel like I was being Christ-like in that moment. I got to call him up. I got to call him up. Anyway. Back to what I was saying. As they were leaving, or, or actually as they were coming back into Jerusalem, the next day, the, the, the fig tree is withered, right? Was Jesus just mad? Did he just hate plants? He's a carnivore. He hates plants. These darn figs, they, aren't even, they don't even grow. No, not at all. This is a real life parable. The fig tree, it represents the entire temple system. And when Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, it can be thrown into the sea. He's looking at the temple mount. Jesus is saying that system was always like this tree. It was leaves with no fruit. It was just an indicator of what would come where the true fruit would come. It's himself. It could never produce the fruit of the true kingdom of God. It was only a sign that was to point to the true fruit. No one could follow the law well enough or make enough sacrifices to be saved. Well, except for one person, Jesus. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem with what he's about to do on the cross, the true fruit has arrived 
And the kingdom of God is to be ushered in through a better system. The law was always meant to point to Jesus. This tree is no longer necessary and Jesus intends to wither it. This is the kingdom and Jesus is the perfect king. But Jesus isn't done with the temple system, but he he actually shifts then to the priests who work within it. When the authorities over that system question him and his authority, he tells them a parable about a vineyard, right? The owner of the vineyard is God. And the vineyard throughout all the Old Testament is a picture of Israel. And if you remember the parable from the passage, if you've been reading this in chapter 12, the owner leaves the vineyard to be cared for by the tenants and he goes somewhere else and he sends representatives back and the tenants, they don't, they don't want to listen to the authority of the owner. And so they beat the, ten, the, 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 the people that he sends and he, they send them away. And then finally the owner sends his own son and they think, oh, we've got a plan. We'll just kill the son. And then there's no heir. And so they kill him. And Jesus is telling this parable about himself. The tenants are those who are supposed to oversee and care for the vineyard. The tenants are the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the people who were supposed to take care of Israel. And God has continually sent to the vineyard, has continually sent people to the vineyard looking for real fruit. Prophets, priests, good ones. And they've come away empty-handed and beaten. And now he's sent his son. And his son will be killed by the very leaders who should have embraced him. But see, God is going to rip the vineyard from their hands. He's going to give it to Jesus. He's going to give it to the stone that they rejected. Do you read that in verse 10 of chapter 12, verse 10 and 11? Not just any stone, but the cornerstone of a new temple. The church, the true Israel. Those whose claim is not the blood ties of ancestry, but faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. True Israel. These, in fact, have always been the true Israel, the true church. And Jesus is their perfect priest. Look with me. These tenants... The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes were to be the priests, but they had failed. The priest was to offer sacrifices and prayers for the people on their behalf to bring them into the presence of God. But they had abandoned their role for earthly gain. And Jesus is about to reveal that fact in chapter 12, verse 13. Some Pharisees come and they try to trap Jesus in a riddle about paying taxes. But Jesus not only shows how the Pharisees come up lacking, he also establishes in that that he is the authority even over worldly authorities. Do you see? Jesus is going to systematically go from one authority to the next and tell you, nope, they're bad. Nope, they can't do it. Nope, they've failed. But yet I am the authority over all of these things. Second, the Sadducees try to trap him with another strange theological question about a woman and, and, and she marries a man and he dies and she marries the brother and he dies and seven brothers she marries. She never has any kids with them. And, and then who is she married to when she gets to heaven? You see, the, the trick of it is the Sadducees didn't even believe that he would ever be resurrected. They didn't believe in the resurrection at all. 
And so it's a trick question for their pet theological perspective. But Jesus isn't having it, is he? Jesus says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Man, I, I would really not like Jesus to say to that to me, right? He simultaneously shows that they are worthless priests while also revealing that he is the king over death. You see, the Pharisees aren't good enough. The Sadducees aren't good enough. Simultaneously, Jesus is saying, I'm the king over every earthly authority. I'm the king over death even. Then there's a scribe that comes to him. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The scribe asks him, what, is, what commandment's the most important? And Jesus replies, this is my paraphrase, all the commandments are about loving God and loving people. And the scribe agrees. And then look at what Jesus says. Jesus sees that the scribe agrees with him, really truly agrees with him. And he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But notice he's close, but he's not there. What's missing here? You see, Jesus turns the tables on him. And he asks a question. He asks a question about the scribe's teaching. Basically, what he asks, see, make sure I know where this is. In verse 35 of chapter 12, he asks, how can the Christ, or the coming Messiah, be called David's son when David calls him Lord? And he quotes David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Translation, what he's saying is, how can they call him merely a human descendant as if David is an authority over the Christ when clearly David saw the Christ as an authority over him, as the true king? And what this reveals is the very thing that the scribes are missing. Yes, you talk about loving God, you talk about loving people, you talk about all the commandments, but you're missing this one super important thing. And I think many times today, very similarly, Christians miss the same exact thing. We want to make Christianity about believing that God exists and being a good and moral person. And if you could just believe that God exists and be a good and moral person, that's good enough. And Jesus is saying, close, but you missed it. No, it's not good enough. You have the knowledge, but you're missing the true change that results in right belief and right actions. What's missing? What's missing here? What's missing is that Jesus is actually the authority over everything. That it's not just that God exists. It's not just being a good and moral person, but it's that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Lord and he does have authority over every single thing and he has an authority over you and over me and it's not good enough for me to just try to be a good and moral person in my own power. I must repent and turn to Jesus. I must. Because he's the only one who has the authority to save me. I don't have the authority to save myself. And so Jesus sits down and he shows, he displays by the actions of the scribes why this is so important. He shows it in real time. 
It's funny. I think it's, it's interesting. He sits down, it says across from the offering box. I, I, I don't know if you're a people watcher. Like sometimes I'm a people watcher. You know, you just sit like, throw your lawn chair out in front of your, your, your house. You know, your car's driving by, people walking by. You're chilling somewhere in a public setting. You just sit there and you're just like watching people go by. Jesus is a people watcher apparently. And he's sitting there and he's watching these scribes. And he points out the telling behavior of these imposters. And while the scribes, they, they're saying the right things and they look good, he shows that their hearts, what's really inside, is actually all about their own popularity and their own pocketbooks. He shows by a woman who puts everything in and scribes who try to display their generosity, but in reality, they're not actually giving that much. They're not actually sacrificing anything. He shows that their hearts are actually wrong, even while they do a few right things. Translation, these priests have not allowed Israel, uh, these priests have not only allowed Israel to be filled with idols, they themselves are filled with idols. That's what Jesus shows. You see, when Jesus isn't the Lord, the true Lord over your life, the one who gets to say whatever, and you say, yes, Father. We can look really good on the outside, but our hearts can be filled with idols. Jesus is the better priest, though, on whom a new temple will be built. But what's going to happen to the old temple? Well, settle up. This is part three. Jesus is a better prophet. Chapter 13, we're going to cruise through this pretty fast. Chapter 13 starts with Jesus and his disciples. They're walking out of the temple. And one of the disciples says, hey, Jesus, look how great the temple looks. Isn't it such a beautiful temple? And Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. What a weird, what a weird thing to reply. Jesus, I, like I think, if, I think half the time if Jesus was around, we'd be like, yeah, he doesn't get social cues very well. Right? But he's the better prophet. He just tells the truth. He speaks the truth. That's all he can do. He's not going to like say something that's false just to make you feel better in the moment. He's not going to be like, oh, actually it's going to be destroyed, but I don't want to say that because that's going to make that disciple feel bad. So, oh yeah, it's really, it's quite a special building. No, he's like, that's going to be destroyed. You need to know. Now, there are people when they read chapter 13, there are people who think, well, all of these things that Jesus is talking about happen in the future still for us. S some people say, no, all these things have already happened. Uh, they happened after when Jesus is talking here, but before us right now, there's some that say there's a mixture of things happening here. I, I don't really want to, I want to concentrate this morning because we don't have time to really dig, dig into the depths of everything uh, on a few big picture truths that show how Jesus is our better prophet. Jesus doesn't go along, like I said, with the disciples' comments. He speaks the truth. When all the other teachers and the religious leaders are feeding people what they want to hear so that they can appease the mob and keep their power, Jesus is only concerned with God's word and truth. Perhaps Jesus' words in chapter 13, if we read them, they, they might be kind of scary to us. Uh, 
You know, I like healing Jesus better than prophetic Jesus. Can we have more healing Jesus and a little less prophetic Jesus? When most of us think about any change to our little world, to our little life, it's kind of a scary thought. And here's Jesus talking about huge changes, everything changing. It's frightening. But yet, should we be frightened? Look at what, look at what is in this chapter. Verse 7 He says, this must take place. Translation, I know it's going to happen. I'm in control. This is part of the plan. Verse 11, it says that God is going to be with us. He's going to be with his people, his elect. Verse 20, God will protect the elect. Verse 27, Jesus will preserve the elect. You see, for the Christian, we don't need to be anxious. Jesus is not like the other prophets who only proclaim God's truth. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the one who will actually fulfill that prophecy. He's not just a messenger. He's the king. What are we to do? As you read chapter 13, what you'll see over and over and over again are phrases like, be on, our gu- on your guard. Do not be led astray. Stay awake. Be on your guard against false preachers, against false teaching, against false gospels, against false Christs. Proclaim the gospel. If you if you're proclaiming the, the true gospel, it's harder to be pulled away by a false one. Stay awake. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't be lulled to sleep about the worries of this life. Don't be lulled asleep by the the treasures of the world, by the comforts that this life can bring. Don't be lulled asleep. Stay vigilant in your spiritual life because God's doing things. Because there are dangers, real dangers, but God is in control. And by the end of this section, I'm feeling like the people with the palm leaves, right? At the triumphal entry, I'm like, say the word, Jesus. I'm about ready to storm the castle here. Let's go, right? I'm team Jesus. But here's the snag. You and I, without Jesus, we're the problem, not the solution. We're the problem. It's easy to judge authorities, these authorities or the authorities that we have now, but would we do better? Have we done better? You see, the reality is is that every human being from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, were supposed to be prophets, priests, and kings. Did you know that? Adam was given dominion over the earth and tasked with spreading God's rule, but humanity had exchanged God's loving reign for tyrannical self-rule. We were supposed to be kings and we failed. Adam was given God's sanctuary, the garden where he was to be with God and to keep it and to extend it and be in God's presence, but humanity exchanged God's loving presence for greedy self-love. We failed at being priests. Adam was given God's word and truth, his commands and blessings to preserve, to declare, and to obey. But humanity exchanged God's loving truth for prideful self-deception. We were supposed to be prophets and we failed. All of us have been given authority, big or small, in our spheres 
of influence. Parents in their families, bosses in their workplaces, even if your sphere is just your own little life and the decisions that are right in front of you, you have authority in some way, in some fashion here. God's given it to you and you are to declare and obey God's truth as a prophet. You are to offer your life as a living sacrifice in thanksgiving as a priest and you are to extend God's kingdom as a king over whatever sphere God's given you. But too often we call foolishness wisdom we call evil good we call injustice justice and god cannot and will not stand for this he will cleanse his temple and you're his temple here's the thing and if you're worried about the authorities of today, about corrupt politicians cheating you, secret backroom deals, if you're concerned about fake news, what's really true, if you're struggling with the pressures of society that seems, seems to change every single year, right? If you're nervous about what will come, if you're dwelling on the failings of your parents in the past, how they let you down, man, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus succeeds where everyone else fails. Jesus succeeds where you fail. The very authorities who should have understood missed it. And then they plotted and they lied and they deceived in order to put Jesus to death. Even even Pilate. Do you remember? Even Pilate told Jesus, don't you understand? I have the authority over your life. I have the authority to let you live or to kill you. And what Jesus say, you have no authority but what God, my father, has given you. That's the authority that Jesus has. The true king comes into Jerusalem not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, but the Father then exalts him. And so, as prophet, his life reveals God, reveals God, and he speaks God's word. His death fulfilled God's word, and his resurrection is the guarantee that he will do it again. As priest, his life brought God close to us when we couldn't come close to God, right? His death is the sacrifice for our failings, purifying our sinfulness, and he rose to the throne and he intercedes for us right now and he sends his spirit to live inside of us to transform us as living temples. That's the Jesus who's our king. As a good king, as a king, his life displays the power that he has over everything, restoring people back to wholeness. His death showed he is, he's a good king who loves and serves his people, who's willing to sacrifice for them. And he rose and he's currently enthroned and rules over us, his church, and over the entire universe as his footstool with not one peace out of his control. That's our king. Where everyone else fails, Jesus succeeds. He's our mediator. He's our mediator with God, making it possible for us, the true temple, to bear true fruit for his kingdom. As we now can fulfill these three offices again. Because of him, we get to be prophets. 
proclaiming the gospel. We get to be priests interceding, displaying Christ to others. We get to be kings, extending his rule, the rule of his new kingdom. It's all because he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again.